Let's pray. Father, I pray that the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've said this before, but one of my favorite things as a pastor is watching the congregation as we observe the Lord's Supper together. The reverence with which you display um, before the Lord and the serious manner in which you examine yourselves in preparation for communion is always a great encouragement for me. So I'm sitting up here in the chair and I peek out and I see different of you uh, before the Lord and uh, your love for the Lord is very much on open display and it makes me proud to be your pastor. The Apostle Paul had a very different feeling when it came to the way the church in Corinth was observing the Lord's Supper. He had a whole list of grievances. Instead of being a display of their common love for Christ and one another, In the Corinthian church, the Lord's Supper was an occasion to emphasize divisions. Some were eating the meal without concern for whether there was enough for everyone. Others abused the wine and got drunk. Their observance of the Lord's Supper amounted to an abuse of the church and an opportunity to humiliate the poor. The early church met in homes. They didn't have church buildings like we have. And depending on the size of the church uh, in the particular city, the church might meet in several different homes. Typically, the richer families would offer their homes for the church to meet. The homes for the rich uh, 2,000 years ago would, um, would pale in, conser- in comparison to our most modest homes. Uh, Their homes were not nearly as spacious as our homes that we live in. And according to an archaeologist who worked among the the ruins in Corinth, he said among the larger homes, uh, among the the homes of the most rich, only 9 to 12 guests at most could eat in in these most spacious of homes. But these homes typically had a courtyard, and kind of like we might have a lanai behind our home, and they would go and the rest of the congregation would uh, eat in the courtyard. And again, among the the richer um, folks in the church, their courtyard might accommodate 40 to 50 people. So 9 to 12 eating inside, and then 40 to 50 out in the courtyard. The commentators are pretty certain that the rich host, uh, the rich who would would host the church service, would invite their close friends, typically of the same social class, to eat inside the home with them while everyone else had to eat outside. And, of course, as so often happens, we get carried away with our own self-importance. And the host would uh, 
be so intent on impressing their friends that the poorer members of the church would often be neglected. And so this is what's happening in verses 17 through 23 when Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And he spoke about those divisions earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapters 2 and 3. And he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One, gets, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You know, I typically don't read this passage of Scripture when we're getting ready to have the Lord's Supper. Not surprising, right? It's not very encouraging to hear him rebuking the congregation uh, so forthrightly. And so what's happening here in the Corinthian church would be like Jimbo announcing during the worship service in College Hill that the church, everybody attending the worship service is going out to eat at Bonefish or Red Lobster after the service, but only if you had enough money to pay for yourself. Well, Mr. Haywood, who is homeless and lives in a field, he wouldn't be able to go. Takin, who doesn't have a job, who is recovering from a gunshot wound, would not be able to go. Um, Miss Cheryl, whose son just died recently, and she doesn't have very much money to her name, she wouldn't be able to go. Miss Vera wouldn't be able to go. And how humiliating would it be for Jimbo to announce... We're going to Bonefish. We're going to Red Lobster. But only if you have enough money to pay for yourself. College Hill is one of the most impoverished areas of of Tampa. And so it would just be incredibly humiliating for these people. And of course, Jimbo doesn't do this, and nor would he. But it's an illustration of what what was happening in the church in Corinth. The poor were being humiliated because they were sitting out in the courtyard with, with not enough for everybody to even have a morsel while the richer among them were eating inside in the shade, had plenty of food, apparently had more than enough wine so that they were getting drunk during the, the uh, Lord's Supper. The Lord will not stand for the church to show partiality or, or humiliate the poor. Listen to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who who oppress you? Are they and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. And so you can understand then why Paul is so upset. God will not tolerate the church which he purchased with his own blood making distinctions. Especially distinctions among the rich and the poor. And so this is the sin that so upset Paul. They made the Lord's Supper an occasion to humiliate the poor among the congregation. The sinfulness of the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper is not just seen in the abuse of the poor, but also is seen in the abuse of the Lord, who is the one who is symbolized by the meal. In making a mockery of the Lord's Supper, they are making a mockery of Jesus Christ Himself. The bread represents the body of Christ. The cup represents the new covenant in His blood. And so that's what Paul is doing here in verses 23 through 26 when he is reminding them of the instructions that he received from the Lord about the Lord's Supper. They knew about the Lord's Supper. They had been observing the Lord's Supper. But he is essentially saying, you have strayed so far off that it's not even the Lord's Supper that you are eating um, when you uh, come together to eat and drink. And so he gives them these first principles again, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this passage where Jesus is saying, this bread is my body, where he is saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he is speaking here of symbols that are only symbols. The symbols are not changed into Christ's literal body or blood. The Roman Catholic uh, observance of the Lord's Supper, it says that the bread and the wine do indeed turn into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. This is a pernicious heresy. In the Mass, the Roman Catholic Church is declaring that they are re-crucifying again and again the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd urge all of you never to participate in a Roman Catholic Mass. It is such a distortion of the gospel and it is an abomination toward the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but in condemning the Roman Catholic Mass. We can't jump on the the pendulum and swing away from the truth of the Scriptures. Many evangelical churches do this. They swing too far in swinging away from the the Roman Catholic view of the, the Lord's Supper. And they define the Lord's Supper as merely a memorial of Christ's death and resurrection. It's just a remembrance, stressing verse 24 and 25, where it says, um, when, when, they, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, it's a remembrance, remembrance or memorial. Uh, it's a memorial of what Christ did in his death and resurrection. But that's all it is in this view. We could say that um, for those who swung too far and simply see the Lord's Supper as a memorial, it's like the, the 9-11 moment of silence that we observe as a nation at 8.46 a.m. each September 11th. And so it's just a remembrance. And that's why the Lord's Supper is only observed quarterly or yearly in many churches, because they just see it as a remembrance, as a memorial. This does not take into account what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, where he said, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so it's more than a memorial. There's a participation going on. Word is for participation. It's the word koinia. I'm so glad that uh, there was an announcement uh, uh, before the service. The, the koinia small group is about to uh, about to start meeting again, and I heard the co- the word koinia. I said I'm going to bring that up as a as an illustration. The word koinia is a Greek word means fellowship. It can mean Sharing in. It can mean participation. And so the Lord's Supper is more than just a memorial. It's more than just a remembrance. It is that, but it's more. It is a participation in the the blood of Christ. It is a participation in the body of Christ. There's a real fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ when we consume the cup. And eat the bread. This fellowship with Christ doesn't come through the bread and the cup being consumed. Rather, this fellowship with Christ comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Uh, Jesus said in verse 24, This is my body, as he held up the bread and broke it in their presence. When he held up the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What he's doing is he is referring these symbols to himself. He's telling them in effect the same thing that he told the assembled crowds in John chapter 6. When he said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. This is more than a memorial. This is more than a remembrance. It is a... When we take the... the, When we partake of the symbols, Christ is truly displayed in the symbols. But He is not present in the symbols. He's not in the bread. He's not in the cup. But He is represented. Those symbols point to Him. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a sermon made visible whereby Christ crucified is set before us. It's not altogether dissimilar from us watching a film of a historical event. I like World War II. I didn't like that it happened, of course, but I love learning about it and honoring those who fought in it. We know Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7th, 1941. We know many facts about the Japanese raid. We know that uh, no U.S. carriers were in the docks at the time. They were all out at sea. We know that the battleship USS Arizona was sunk very quickly, among other ships that were sunk. But when we, fit, when we view the film, our emotions and our senses are more engaged. And the first century Christians did not have a film of Jesus' death. They didn't have a photograph of His resurrection appearance. And so the Lord's Supper was a visible sermon for them to uh, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for for them. Now this film, film analogy, although helpful in one respect is not helpful in another respect. The Lord's Supper is not a film. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. There is um, a real participation with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we engage with real fellowship with our Lord and Savior. When we look upon the symbols of the bread and cup, and when we consume the elements, we are embracing Christ by faith. We embrace Christ by faith, or when we embrace Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit is pouring out Christ's grace into our lives. And I think that's why Paul called the cup in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing. Because Christ's blessing, His grace, is being poured into our soul even as the juice is pouring down our throats and into our belly. I'm only going to address this morning the importance of the wine. Next Sunday I'll address the importance of using grape juice. I'll do this very quickly. And this is, if you're just joining us, uh, we are looking to uh, offer wine and grape juice in the Lord's Supper. Not this week, but uh, next month. And so, preaching a series of sermons here on this topic and, and looking at the, the Lord's Supper in, from a wider angle. But now, getting down into the specifics of uh, why we would want to use uh, grape juice. Um, and I am uh, stretching this sermon series out a little bit longer than I wanted to. 
One of our visiting families told me last week that they were going to visit uh, to hear the rest of the series. And I thought, I might stretch it out 10 weeks and wear them down until they say, okay, we'll join the church. <laughs> but uh, we won't be going that long. The Bible, the and The Old Testament and the New Testament abounds with instances where wine is used as a symbol. Most typically, it represents God's blessings or His curse. So, for instance, Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Or Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the city, the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What if in the new heavens and new earth there is wine dripping over the mountains and great waterfalls? When I was in Africa 30 years, 32 years, 33 years ago now, and uh, we went to, um, to one town where there was a great mountain and there were waterfalls falling hundreds of feet And then I went back 24 years, 25 years later, just recently, went to that same town and the the same mountain and those same waterfalls, um, water cascading, falling all those hundreds of feet, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. What if this is a picture of the new heavens and new earth and there's wine cascading over the mountains? And, And the picture here is of the great celebration because of uh, God restoring the fortunes of His people Israel. And they're going to rebuild the cities and inhabit them. These passages celebrate the blessing of the outpouring of the gospel. Wine, in other words, is a symbol of God's grace. But it's also a symbol of God's wrath. Because we find the following in this These were just a couple of representative uh, verses I could have picked out, 10 or 20, very easily. 75, for in the land of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. We celebrate with wine because the Lord Jesus Christ purchased our salvation. He poured out his blood that we might have life through him. 
But then there's also this picture. When Christ went to the cross, the foaming wrath, the foaming wine of God's wrath was outpoured on the Lord Jesus Christ. The cup of wrath caused the people to stagger because it was alcoholic. Well, and so symbolically speaking, in Isaiah 51, God had poured out the, full, the, the foaming bowl of His wrath and the people were staggering. But this is an important part of the symbolism that we cannot easily overlook. Our Lord Jesus drunk to the dregs the bitter wine of God's wrath. He received in His person the full measure of wrath and the holy justice that we deserved. He consumed God's wrath in our place. Let me ask you, have you fled to the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you cons- or, or will you consume the full measure of God's wrath and holy justice? The only way to escape God's wrath and justice is fleeing to Christ who drank it down to the dregs in your behalf. Additionally, wine is used for a a symbol of feasting and celebration in God's presence. And this is an important point because the Lord's Supper is a celebration of God's love for us and our love for each other in the congregation. Unfortunately, some of the Corinthians celebrated a bit too much in the Lord's Supper without regarding Christ, without regarding the others. They got drunk on the communion wine, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one. But several passages of Scripture speak of the celebratory symbolism of the wine. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place He will choose. To make His name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Or Isaiah 25, as it looks forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited on Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And of course you remember also Ecclesiastes 9-7 as we just finished up recently the series through Ecclesiastes where Solomon said, Go eat bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Wine is also commanded to be used as an element in the worship of God in the tabernacle and the temple. 
and we could quote passages um, on that. But I want us to consider that wine, because it is a symbol, because it was prescribed by God to be used in the Passover meal, that in the communion celebration, we are being reminded of God's mercy to us in Christ. But at the very same time, we are reminded that Christ's blood was outpoured and His body was broken because of the outpouring of God's wrath. In Christ, mercy and justice kiss, according to Psalm 85, verse 10. Because we are recipients of Christ's salvation, we celebrate and we throw a festival to remember God's grace to us. There are other proofs that I could offer. We could look at the science of fermentation. We could look at um, the Lord Jesus Christ being accused of being a, a wine bibber because he went to parties where wine was served. The reason we are offering wine here um, in the Lord's Supper going forward is because the Bible says that wine was used. And there, are, there have been people in the congregation who have patiently asked for us to study this matter who uh, believe that in their conscience, wine is the more appropriate um, symbol than grape juice. And when wine was used, how can we say no? It really boils down to that question. Are we going to bind their conscience? How can we? Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the case for grape juice being used. And I believe that there is a great case for grape juice to be used. I believe there's a solid case, and I hope to make it next week. But I cannot, as a pastor, nor can the session, sidestep the idea, that, or the practice, that wine was used in the Lord's Supper. It was used in the Passover. It was used throughout Christian history. Up until the late 1800s, early 1900s. We do not want to bind anyone's conscience regarding wine, we don't want to bind anyone's conscience regarding grape juice. That, at bottom, is our rationale for moving forward. What we want to do is we want to love each other in the body of Christ. We want to submit to one another in the body of Christ. Next week, we'll look at uh, the case for grape juice. We'll look also at the, um, the idea of... Um, Christian courtesy, one toward another, or as the theologians call it, Christian uh, liberty. And so, uh, I do invite you back next week to hear, hopefully, the, the final installment of this sermon series. But we may stretch it out one more week. Most of all, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ,
We have been purchased by his blood. The Apostle Paul, as we read here in this passage, was grieved that the Lord's Supper was an occasion for the congregation to show their divisions. May this be an occasion for us in Christ to show our love one to another, to show our mutual submission to our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's pray together. Father, as we have the meal spread before us, I pray that You would help us to see Christ in this visible sermon of the the bread that is broken, the cup um, of that represents Christ's blood of the new covenant. God, I pray that you would pour out your grace upon us. Father, I pray that you would use this sermon series that raises so many questions to draw us deeper and more in love with each other in the body of Christ because we have our one common Savior who loves us so. We ask in His name. Amen.